Eric, could you open Testing. in prayer? Yeah. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you've allowed us, you've given us the privilege to study your word today. That you've given us all of your love, all everything we need to know. Please help our teacher, Bob. Bless him. Bless Eric. Bless each of us here spiritually that we can understand your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we begin, I, was, I would have been throwing this one out. Do you have verse 43? You probably don't, do you? Okay, Eric, could you read Acts 10, 43? And then feel free to comment on it. Otherwise, I will. Because we need to know what Peter was saying when God poured out his spirit on the people that were listening to him. Acts 10.43 says, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in Christ, who he was preaching, receives forgiveness of sins. I'm going to need a lot of readers today. If you think of anything that's significant about that, Eric, I'm interested. Somebody please look up. Maybe I got it here. Oh, I got it. Okay, let's go to verse 44. So Peter was saying that if, if you, all the ones who believe in Christ receive forgiveness of sins. Now, remember, I'm sure you know because you've been here, unless you're brand new, Luke Acts is a two-volume work. One of the great breakthroughs in biblical studies that's rather current is the idea that Luke Acts should always be interpreted as the two-volume work that it is. That makes so much stuff come alive. I read a book by Tannehill, two-volume work on this, about Luke Acts, the narrative unity of Luke Acts. Amazing breakthrough. It's always been this way, but through much of the history of the church, people were wanting to do different things that didn't help them interpret Luke Acts. For example, way back in history, they started writing. They took the three Gospels and put them all together as if the Holy Spirit made a mistake by having Matthew, Luke, and Mark write Gospels, so they created a Gospel that had all the stuff in it. And all that did was confuse people. And what's important is the intent of the author. The Holy Spirit-inspired biblical author determines the meaning, not the reader. And... Mark may say something and be making a different point than Luke was. It doesn't change what Jesus said and did. Just as we preach sermons from the same text that has one meaning, Eric and I may make different applications or implications that are both true. Today, Eric's going to teach about the beginning of Uh, Romans chapter 9. Last week, I was only going to talk about prayer. 
So I just mentioned it in passing and went right to, to Romans 10.1 to show that even though only a remnant of the Jews would be saved, Paul's prayer was for their salvation. And so we applied that to us in our prayer life. We pray for what we want because we make our requests known to God. But we don't control God. He does things his own way. That's a valid point, but Eric, I don't know if today he'll focus more on just chapter 9 because that's what he's preaching on. So if Mark had a point or Matthew had a point or Luke has a point, it should be interpreted in its own right. When I'm wanting to know what Luke meant, whatever Mark said isn't helping me near as much as what Luke said in Acts or Luke said in Luke in his two-volume work. The same goes with the genealogies. And you might think, after all these years of church history, we now understand it better than they did a thousand years ago? Yes. Not because anything changed about the Bible, but finally, some people thought the author's intent, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. Is that, do you want to comment? Yeah, amen. The, one of the big divides in evangelicalism is who defines the meaning of the text. Is it the reader or the author? And what we're standing on is the author defines the meaning. And therefore, if we can come better to an understanding of what the author intended, that's getting us into contact with the Spirit himself who inspired the author. Yes. For example, two weeks from now, if I, by God's grace, I'm capable of doing it, I'm going to, in one of my applications, preach about the parable of the wheat and the tares. Let me give you an example about authorial intent. Some decades ago, someone came up with a brilliant idea that the parables are not allegories. The parables are analogies given by an author to make a point. You can't take parables and allegories them any way you want and go all over the map. If you're a science fiction writer, you're a better theologian. <laughs> Maybe it was a blessing from God. I was never any good at fiction, imagination. I, I never was any good at it, even when I didn't understand this. The only thing I, I could do was read the text and see what it said. Well, later I found out that was actually a blessing. Now, the parable of the tares, I'll give you a little preview for two weeks from now, is one that Jesus gave the interpretation. And what I'm going to claim is that because Jesus is God, and God cannot lie, Jesus cannot lie, the Holy Spirit who inspired Matthew cannot lie, if Jesus gave the interpretation, that's the right one. <laughs> but you know what? People that you and I love and listen to have botched it. Jesus said, the field is the world, right? There's so many times where people interpret it and say the field is the church. So are they going to stand there and tell me Jesus was wrong? 
the taking out the tears happens at the end of the age. Does that make sense? It's my little preview. But the whole point is, Matthew gave us Jesus' interpretation, and his intent was that we should believe Jesus. I've read whole books where people are using that parable to say the field is the church. The tares are false teachers, and we need to get the false teachers out of the church. Well, it's true that we need to correct false teachers, but why are you telling people Jesus was wrong? Use the verse that actually tells us that. Stop abusing the Bible just because it's useful for a point you want to make. If I do that, even if it's a good point based on something else, I'm harming the Bible. I'm saying Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. And it's embarrassing. I've seen friends of mine who we've had come here and speak, create whole DVDs based on misuse of the parable of the field and the wheat and the tares. And I'm embarrassed for them. I love these guys, but I'm embarrassed for them. Go to the text. Jesus isn't wrong. Okay, why am I saying that? Because the author determines the meaning. Luke Acts is a two-volume work. This is in Acts for a reason. Luke is making a point. So as Peter preaches on forgiveness of sins, while Peter was still speaking these words, verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. Luke Acts is two-volume. Now let's go back to the setting of this. Luke 4.18. Luke 4.18, semantic for Luke, and it carries on into Acts. Jesus said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. The word release, aphasis, means forgiveness. The word for forgiveness in the Greek means to release. You're released from your sins. So Peter, if we're good readers, has just reminded us in his preaching of Luke 4.18. Okay, yes. Um, I, I just, backing up uh, with this uh, wheat and tares, uh, I've heard that, like, during the end times, they say, like, some people say, like, after the rapture, happens that there's going to be some church people or religious people I, I guess I want to say religious people saying well see they got rid of the tares we got rid of the tares because of the rapture yeah the the rapture took God took the bad people out and now we have the good people I, yeah, but, I heard that but what happened to the other ones to throw it into the fire to be burned up, right? Right, but but see what what I heard is uh, their explanation. We're the problem, yeah. yeah so they're yeah. allegorizing it. Yeah, they're, to they're suit saying their that own we needs. are the problem. Yeah, yeah. We know the meaning because Jesus gave it to us. So let me give you hermeneutics one hundred and one. 
Jesus' meaning is the right one. <laughs> but if you believe in allegorizing, the same parable might have 20 meanings. Because you have your own purposes and you'd like to make it sound like the Bible's helping you. Anybody that allegorizes the Bible isn't saying anything more than their own ideas. The Bible means what the author intended it to mean. So what we are to learn. Now, let me give you an example why we need to know Luke Acts is a two-volume work and authorial intent. When I was a new Christian, I went to a Pentecostal Bible college. In God's providence, I ended up with some really good teachers. And I got to give them credit. There was a movement amongst some of the Pentecostals to be more academic and scholarly and to get back to the text. Whereas that had been a revivalistic movement based on silver-tongued orators charging up the masses and get people to run to the front of the service. And they said, well, that's okay, but we need to know what the Bible saw. So I had good teachers. But here was what was wrong with Pentecostal theology. They believed that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a second blessing. And that the evidence that you had the second blessing was speaking in tongues. And so they went through all of the instances where people were baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit and found Acts 2, tongues. Acts 10, tongues. Acts 8, something was seen that made the guy want to buy it. That must have been tongues. So they used this inductive method to prove two things, that there is a second blessing. There's two kinds of Christians, the ordinary Christians and the spirit-filled Christians, And secondly, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not one of the latter. So I wrote a paper about that back in the 90s, I think, in my CIC, and showed that the inductive process doesn't work because there isn't an ordo salutis here. This always happens, then this, and then this. Plus, the point of Acts 2 is that Christ fulfilled the promise that the Holy Spirit would come. And the point in Acts 10 isn't that there's a second blessing. It's that God is saving Gentiles by the same means that he saved Jews. That forgiveness is there. Yes, uh, bring the mic over here. Hold on a second. There you go. Thank you. Uh, I was just going to say that uh, speaking in tongues, though, is one of the lesser gifts. According to Paul, yes. So that, I mean, and if you're speaking in tongues, you have to have an interpreter. Yeah. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 14. I've written about that. So it doesn't do anybody any good. But see, they're trying to prove I'm really a Holy Ghost-filled Christian and not an ordinary Christian. But that's pietism. The point of Luke X, and we just read Luke acts as the two-volume work, and what point is Luke making is that God gave the same gift to these Gentiles who believed as he gave to the Jews at Pentecost to convince the Jews that God would save Gentiles. It was okay for the Ethiopian to be saved because he went somewhere else. We don't have to deal with him. He's not going to sit in table fellowship. The overriding issue here was Peter had table fellowship with Gentiles. And he had a vision and a dream 
to show him that God was going to make unclean Gentiles clean. That's the whole point of this narrative. So let's not theorize about speaking in tongues, whether it creates a second blessing. And they, what do you say to the Pentecostals? Well, but this all, they weren't saved until then. Well, sometimes you get saved and spirit baptized in one shot. But some people get saved first and spirit baptized later. Now, what that turned out to be, and all pietism, I shouldn't say it's over responsible statement, much pietism in the 20th century was a means for evangelicals to evangelize Lutherans and Catholics mainly Lutherans, or any other denominational group. Because if you went to denominational people and tell them, you're not saved, you need to repent and believe in Christ, they got really upset. Most Lutherans would say, well, I was saved when I was baptized. And various walls would go up. See, I was trained in Pentecostal Bible College. Every Assemblies of God Church had a Sunday night meeting. I, I once interviewed a guy who started churches all over Wisconsin. I think he was Baptist, actually. They would do the same. Evangelicals would come into town, rent a place, and start a Sunday night meeting. Because all the Lutherans and Catholics were going to go to church every Sunday morning, no matter what. Because they felt obligated to do so. But they didn't have a Sunday night meeting in the Lutheran and Catholic and other Presbyterian or whatever the denomination was. So they'd try to get people to come to church Sunday night and tell them, well, you haven't really, whatever it is, you haven't been fully sanctified if you were A.B. Simpson type. You haven't been filled with the Holy Ghost if you're Pentecostal. You haven't found total perfection if you're Wesleyan or whatever. You always had a second blessing to offer because when they got there, they didn't have to admit they weren't saved because that was offensive. Well, you need a second blessing so they come and receive it. And think, wow, now I'm a bonfire Christian. Now I got the Holy Ghost. Now I'm sanctified. Now I can really function. I've interviewed dozens and dozens of people and later they look back and say, that's when I was saved. It wasn't really a second blessing because I never was saved when I was a Lutheran. I'm not saying no Lutherans are saved. Don't say that. I'm not saying that. But some people were just thinking I was baptized. I'm Swedish. <laughs> what else do you need? And then they show up. Well, I wonder what these people are doing. And they have an evangelist and well, you can receive the Holy Ghost. And then a lot of them then come to the Lord. Well, that's my take on this. What's Luke's point? God saved Gentiles in the same way he saved the Jews. Through Jesus Christ, who suffered and died for sins, who was raised on the third day, who bodily ascended to heaven, and he had promised to pour out the Holy Spirit, to send the Holy Spirit. And this is it. This is it. This is the promise 
that the Holy Ghost would come upon those who believe that, according to King James. It is linked here, not to a second blessing, but release from sins. So I think that when we preach the gospel, we should, most of the time, every once in a while, I'll use a certain passage, and Eric will use a certain passage, and we share the gospel. But I try to remember forgiveness of sins. Because that's, that's central. Well, do you have anything to say, Eric? No. Okay. Although, um, one thing I'll just point out just to, uh, you know, I read that verse 43, and it's interesting. He says, to him, all the prophets bear witness. Amen. Remember at Pentecost, uh, Peter made the point that even Joel. David was oh, a yeah. prophet because Psalm 1610, that the holy wind would not see decay, he proved that that had to apply to Christ because his tomb was empty and he was not undergoing decay while David's tomb was with David. Yeah, so he used scripture to prove the gospel was true. Exactly, and then he said that David, when he wrote Psalm 1610, knew that this applied to the Christ. He says, for he was a prophet. He was a prophet. He even linked David to being one of the prophets. Hallelujah. You know, it's so powerful to preach the word of God for what it really means. We have no reason to do anything else. God will penetrate hardened hearts. He will bring light into dark minds. He will bring, through the gospel, release of fiamie or ephesus, release from sins, and light into a dark place. And we're transferred from the dominion of Satan to Christ. We have a whole new spiritual domain. Now another, so Acts, Luke 4.18 and Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and she shall be my witnesses, both Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. So now that agenda, Acts 1.8, is being fulfilled. So while Peter was preaching on forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message because they believed. That's implied because he said, if you believe, you receive forgiveness of sins. So God interrupted Peter's preaching. Some theologians have called this incident the Gentile Pentecost. Some have said this is the original Pentecost still going on. Only now for these Gentiles. So we go to verse 45. And all the circumcised believers, that is Jewish Christians, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. I'm going to emphasize that word amazed. It's used throughout Luke Acts. And it's used by Luke to indicate someone's response to a mighty work of God. Amazed. A mighty work of God. All of the times before, especially in Luke 24, Jesus told them, Acts 1, he told them that God was going to save Gentiles. The incidents in Acts, excuse me, 
the incidents in Luke prepared us for the fact that God's going to save Gentiles. We should have saw it coming. I love to go back to the story in Luke 8 of the gathering demoniac who ended up in his right mind and sent to witness to his own people. There was a saved Gentile. Many of the people saved in the book of Luke, unexpected people. Nobody would expect God would save any of them, but he did. Unclean people, hopeless people, Gentile people. The woman with an issue of blood, unclean. If you had an issue of blood, you were unclean. You couldn't participate in anything. Here's a woman for all those years, unclean, 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 perpetually unclean. And she she was so desperate, she came and touched the hem of Jesus' garment to show us the mighty power of God. She's healed. Jesus talked to her. She was one of those people that were unexpected. Here are these unclean Gentiles. They had no place in temple Judaism other than through a lot of difficulty. They had to be circumcised. They had to go through proselyte process. God just brings them right in. Yes. From what the text says and from what I've heard over the years here, it seems clear to me that God is not obligated to adhere to man's categories. However, that is Jew, Gentile, and so forth. However, categories are important, are they not? The categories that are important are the ones revealed in the Bible. And so the new category here is that release from sins and acceptance in the church is not grounded in your previous religion or your ethnicity, or your cultural status is grounded in the work of God who forgives sinners and brings them to himself. And we saw, we watched the video, Prodigal Son. There's somebody nobody would have ever accepted. But the father runs out, shames himself, which Jesus did by dying on a shameful death on the cross to bring this worthless person to himself and lavish honor on the most dishonorable of all people, the prodigal. Dear saints, you and I were utterly dishonorable. Anybody that knew anything about Christianity... I'll talk about myself, would never, ever think that God should show me mercy. I was an enemy of Christians. I was angry. I had left the church. Well, it wasn't the church. It was theological liberalism and went over to science only. But God saved me. How important it is that we receive saved sinners. If you can't See that in Luke X, you're not reading. I would say go back and read it again. Sit down and just read Luke X as a two-volume work. And if you don't see that God saves unexpected people, you're not reading. Try it again. Because Luke is screaming it at us. From the very beginning of Luke, the shepherds. Why do the angels go to shepherds? Shepherds are considered unclean. 
They had no way to do all the things you had to do to be clean. They were just out there all the time, not keeping what they needed to keep. They weren't people of status in Israel, but God chose shepherds. I love this. I love the gospel. Yes, Brother Eric. Yeah, um, you know, I was hearing some teaching about uh, First John from someone recently, and you know, those are the ultimate categories that are meaningful. Is that we either are uh, we either abide in Christ, so we're in Christ, or we abide in lawlessness. I think you might remember that, Bob. I think so. <laughs> I may mention it before yeah, I've uh, done uh, First John. Yeah. So we got a lot of subcategories. But either you abide in Christ or you don't. Now, I was just at a meeting on Friday night where there was a Catholic priest who said, he talked about, you know, we're all human beings, okay? We know that. We're all human beings. And so we care about each other as human beings. So it doesn't mean we hate those who are abiding in lawlessness. And that's important because this Catholic priest stood there in this meeting and he said, you should, you know, he, he, he completely rejected the notion of, you know, it's like this brotherhood of man thing is what it was. Yeah. And, and it was, and you couldn't, in other words, this is where the, the, some of the mainline denominations have gone is that they've, they, they do not bother to admit that some people are in Christ and some people are abiding in lawlessness, and they, and they say to you that if you make that differentiation, that you are a hater. And we do not hate the lost. I know. We love the lost enough to proclaim the gospel to them. That's, that's but right. there are some of these people, they won't get it. They just, it's like their eyes are blinded, that, and God that, has given them over to a depraved mind. That's, that's really what it is about. When I got forgiven of my sins and converted... By God's power, miraculously, I went to the liberal pastor of the church where uh, I had left because they told me the Bible wasn't true, there's no resurrection, and there were no miracles. I didn't, not that I believed any of those things. I thought, well, then I don't need religion. Science is good enough. So when I got saved, I went back to tell him what happened. The guy, he was in his 70s. And he told me, just me and the pastor, he said, well, I was a young man back in the early 19, you know, like 1910 or whatever. I mean, he was like World War I era person. I used to believe that. I went to some of these holiness meetings, but I don't buy it now. It's just everybody's God's children, and we just got to understand everybody's good. We don't, there, there's no... So he's basically poo-pooing what happened to me. Just same thing that I was told before I left. You don't need to be, everything's okay. Just everybody's a good person. I said, okay, thank you. And I went off to the gospel church in town. Everybody's a good person. But see, this is such a big lie. It's just the opposite. Everybody's a wicked sinner. I knew I wasn't a good person before I met Christ. I, at least I knew that after I did. I looked back and I was aghast at how wicked I was. Yes. I've um, 
encountered this issue of we're all children of God versus um, we're all created in the image of God. And I um, refer to John 1, 12 through 13. Uh, but as many as received him, talking about Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And um, it's, it's really prevalent. Everybody, yes. especially because of some of the issues with homosexuality and, and things that are, um, people do not have a biblical foundation in order to discern between you know that um, being acceptable or not. And um, I really feel that this is the key text to bring up when you face that um, with a person who just wants everyone to be called a child of God. Christy, either we both know what we're talking about or neither, because I was just looking for that verse. <laughs> Thank you. You saved me finding it. Free exactly. coffee. Well, that, see, that actually reinforces the categories in first job lawlessness versus abiding. I found a slide yesterday that's not a slide for a PowerPoint, but I wanted it to be one. I drew it out by hand. I had this category, lawlessness, abiding, and then I stuck a false one over that's called a third category. It's a lot of things people believe that assumes there's a third category. Maybe somebody that's a PowerPoint genius could you help me make that slide? I have no clue how to make it. Otherwise, I just got to describe it. But when you see something, it looks pretty cool. Anyhow, Acts 2, 18. Well, first, Luke 24, 49. Thank you for that, Christy and Eric. You're absolutely right. People believe we're all God's children. It's all we need. Luke Acts says no. Becoming God's children is open to anyone who believes. But if you say you're already that way, there's nothing to believe. You just got to go about being a human. Luke 24, 49. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now we saw here in Acts 10, 45, that happened to Gentiles. Then it says in Acts 2.18, even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit and they shall prophesy. And that's all going back to Luke, excuse me, Joel 2.28 and 29. That's what Peter was quoting, God's fulfilling prophecy. Oh, I love Luke Acts. What a privilege to spend a lot, a lot of my years preaching on Luke Acts. I just love it. It's so fantastic. And if we listen to Luke, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it will soften our hearts. We, if we have a tendency, all of us, to become self-righteous, overly harsh, I'm the only one, everybody else is, there's no hope for them. We should never think that way. We are able to go forward knowing that there are an awful lot of lost people, but we don't know who the elect are. And we don't have to look at somebody and we decide they're hopeless. 
I have seen God save hopeless cases. And quickly, the truth sets you free. I was telling Eric a story about a CIC reader. You wouldn't believe how God transformed her in a short time just by hearing that the way out of Satan's domain through the gospel, not exorcists and shamans. A person who was literally suicidal and hopeless after many Christian deliverance counselors were casting out demons. She found an article that we wrote and contacted me. I'm a case in point. I I became suicidal because I didn't think the demons would ever leave me. And I pointed her to the gospel, sent her a link to Colossians 1, 13 and 14, rescued, redeemed, rescued, forgiven. Oh, I've got to get it right. What's the, what's the order? Forgiven, rescued, transferred, redeemed, and forgiven. And I just got a little short email back. What a beautiful description of the gospel. She's already in her right mind. I think of the woman who suffered many things at the hands of many physicians. Jesus set her free. The gathering, Jesus set him free. He's in his right mind. The shamanistic view that is in the church is destroying people. The gospel is your sins are forgiven. You go to the throne of grace. It's no longer you versus the devil. You know, the devil and the demons have been in the world of the spirits for thousands of years. They're liars, they're deceivers, they're real. They do create manifestations, and they can convince anybody that they're still demonized. The gospel takes us out of there, gives us the throne of grace, and we know our sins are forgiven. I sent that forward to Jessica because she helps me so much with CIC. Just unbelievable. I love to see people set free. Just released. Right here, right now. Released. A fiamy. A phasis. Two different uh, tenses of the same verb. Some call this the Gentile Pentecost. Verse 44. Excuse me, 46a. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Oh, I was going to talk about amazed. I'm going to go back one. I don't have a PowerPoint. See, I went back one. Amazed. I, uh, we don't have time, but let me tell you that word. And I wanted to talk to Eric about it. Existemi, to stand. So, me is to stand out. And you just, just, it's so amazing. It's like, it amazes you. That word, amazed, me is found, I'll just rattle these off. Acts 2, 7, Acts 2, 12, Acts 8, 9, Acts 8, 11, Acts 8, 13, Acts 9, 21, Acts 10, 45, Acts 12, 16, and in Luke, Luke 8.56 and 24.22. Now, if you look all those up, what they have in common most of the time is a response to a mighty deed of God. 
God did something that was so powerful and so profound that people are amazed. God did it. The Jewish Christians are amazed when they see unclean Gentiles receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit in the same way they did. Hallelujah. God did it. So now, and they were hearing them speaking in tongues and exalting God. I love that. Exalting God. That reminds us of something in Luke. I hope you're becoming good readers. Who else exalted God early in Luke? The shepherds? Mary? Luke 146. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. Hallelujah. Exalting God. Mega Luno means making great. It's used in Luke 146. Mary exalted God. Glorified God. I'm working on a sermon that'll be the last one in 1 John. I'm going to preach in about three weeks. And I'm looking at the verse that says, little children, guard yourself from idols. We're going to talk about that in that sermon because there's only two verses I'm going to cover. But idols, the most dangerous idols are idols that speak. I'm going to prove that in the Bible. And this thing about Mary here where she said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Mary was a sinner saved by grace. That's what people do when they're saved. They're forgiven. They exalt God. The gathering. Go tell people what God did for you. Go show yourself to the priests. You cleanse the lepers. Tell them. Tell them. Tell them. Look at what God did. He set me free. I'm just a lowly, unmarried, but betrothed woman. The Holy Spirit came upon her. She became the virgin mother of the Lord Jesus. I was looking up some stuff for this sermon. I was digging around and about idols that speak. Let me just give you something, and you can think about it. I haven't preached it yet. You can still tell me if you have any thoughts. But the Mary that people exalt today is not the Mary of the Bible. Okay, so when we tell people the Mary of Rome is an idol. We're not dishonoring the Mary of the Bible. The Mary of the Bible is a sinner saved by grace who was blessed and honored by the Lord Jesus Christ. He asked John to take care of his mother as he was dying on the cross. She was a sinner saved by grace. The Mary of Rome is an idol who speaks. That's the worst demonic idol of all. Eric knows this. In Revelation, what was the big deception? Wasn't there an image that spoke? So this false Mary speaks, and they write it all down, and you can find it on the Internet. 
It's one thing to have a little Virgin Mary statue sitting on your dresser. That's bad if it's an idol, which it usually is. But what if it starts speaking to you? Now you're talking to demons. That's really bad. Idols that speak. Isaiah warns about the idols that King James says they mutter and peep. They're not very clear, but they, they want us to listen. So Mary magnified the Lord. Acts nineteen seventeen it says, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. There's that magnified. Acts 2, 11 and 12, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues. So see, they knew those tongues. Speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement. There's our word. Perplexity. They're saying to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? Peter got up in Acts and preached the gospel. Here he preached it first, and then the Spirit fell. In both cases, it was the mighty work of God. When we preach the gospel, if we're saved, which we are, if we believe in Christ, we've all experienced a mighty deed of God. He took us out of the domain of Satan and put us so that we abide in Christ. To say that there's some higher order, second blessing, is to shame what God already did when he converted us. Okay? So exalting God. When we praise God, we should extol his mighty deeds. Acts 10, 46b, then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? I like how he asks he asks that. How are you going to say no? Here's Jews who are wondering why he went and ate with sinners, but these ones were with him, and they see these people receive their spirit the same way they did in Acts 2, and they were baptized. Remember Peter preached? Repent and be baptized, you. But, you know, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. And so, can we say, oh, no, you can't be baptized because you're Gentiles. Are they going to say that? Anybody want to comment on that? We can't refuse. Now, here's the word that's used here. It's pretty interesting. Let me make some comments. Once we know God has accepted someone... We must lay aside our prejudices and accept whom the Lord brings to himself. Another misapplication, if you think of it, Christy and and, uh, Eric, who mentioned this, we see this in our public discourse. People are saying, oh, we're all God's children. It's true that in civil government, we need to accept everybody as citizens of the United States of America. But to become a citizen of heaven, you need to be born again. But the fact is, citizenship 
in heaven is never based on ethnicity, what your sin used to be, gender, economic status. There's nothing that we bring to the table. Have you heard that idea? I can't come and say, God, you have to accept me because I'm Dutch. There's a lot of people in my hometown who thought that. We had a word for them. It was called hypocrites. They were as wicked as the rest of us unsaved people, but they thought they because they were Dutch, God was happy with them. If you show up in church twice on Sunday, there's nothing we bring. Nothing in my hand I bring. I don't bring anything. But if someone does come through the terms that God has revealed in the Bible, it'd be a horrible sin for the church to say, no, not you. Go away. That would be the most wicked, imaginable thing for the church to do, to not receive a repentant sinner. Yes. I was just thinking about, uh, when I was reading through Revelation, not, not that there's a higher order Christian or anything like that, but I was thinking about how, some, you know, it gives us these exhortations to wake up or return to your first love, and it's like, draw closer to him and he'll draw closer to us. And I've confused on the matter a little myself. You know, on the one hand, it's, you know, us, it says, like he said to Cain, you must, sin is crouching at the door, you must master it. On the other hand, we can't do anything apart from Christ. And it just... I don't know, it's like the least of you will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's like, you know, we learn as we draw closer to God. We really do draw closer to God. He really does sanctify us and build us up. But we just learn how, you know, undeserving and how small and how, you know, it's like... The only way we draw near to God is through the blood of Jesus. And the exhortation is the means God uses to motivate us to pray and to believe, and to trust Jesus. I have some stuff, I have a feeling we'll never get to it. I have, in case we get done early someday, I have these slides with discussion questions, but I can't ever get done early. Must be my fault. But you know what, I have one, I've been thinking about that, Eric. For example, I don't believe in new revelations, but God said if you lack wisdom in James, ask, God isn't stingy, he gives it. So how, does you, how do you get wisdom when you ask for it? The means is to ask, but how does it come? Well, yes, but you may not have thought of the right passage. God's providence, I've seen it happen. Having a problem in my life I can't fix, and I decided I'm going to ask God for wisdom because he told me to. I don't know how it's going to come, but something happens providentially. Something comes to light and the answer becomes clear. It's not God binding me to what should be Christian liberty, but it's showing me the answer that was sitting right there and I never saw it. Yes. Just gonna, I was going to say a couple things. Um, when we talk to people who they... they they, they, they really are afraid to literally throw themselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ and to, to repent and to say, you know what, I can't do this on my own. And, and we've run into people like that. And 
what we try to tell them is don't try to change the law of Christ. You know, in other words, the law is not all gone. We're, we're in the new covenant, but, and we all know this, that there are, you know, um, God doesn't just say it's all grace. You can do whatever you want. We, we all know that. There are people that twist things. So you don't throw out the word of God, but, you know, don't change God's word, but claim the grace. Yeah. So we've run into people with horrible sin that they're dealing with, and we just have to tell them that, and then they just trust in Jesus Christ. Yeah, trust God releases people from sin. Yeah, and the wisdom of God, but this is where you abide in the Word of God and, and you ask the Holy Spirit to help you. You just throw yourself on the mercy of God, and that's hard for us to do because we're, we all have pride, every one of us. Yeah, we need to uh, flee to the gospel. Listen, when you're unconverted in your mind, you can't imagine ever being a good Christian unless you're a hypocrite. I, I can't ever imagine giving this up or giving that up. Or You don't have to imagine. You need to repent and believe the gospel. And when God changes us, we thank him for getting us away from our old friends. We see things for what they are. Yes. And I was just going to say, somebody in here always makes a wonderful statement about walking and chewing gum at the same time. But um, because Timothy 2, Paul, I'm sorry, talked about Demas, who was with him, and then he left for the world. And so when the rubber hits the road and it becomes really difficult is because people can fall into mud puddles and, you know, where it's, they're saved. But as Christians, we can't, you know, kind of ignore, well, they're Christians, so... I don't want to address behavior. You know what I'm trying to say? You know, if they are a Christian, they'll get out of the mud. Right. And so, you know, it's just you got to walk and chew gum at the same time. And we all need to be wise, like you said, and in, in, in prayer about things, because just because we're saved does not mean we are suddenly sparkling clean. You know, we still live in the world and we still have evil tendencies, you know. Right. But we believe God will get us to glory. Let me read a few verses here. We're looking at the end of Acts 10.46, and I'm looking at that word refuse. The word literally means hinder. I'm going to read some verses in Luke-Acts, okay? When Peter, excuse me, when Luke uses repeated terms, that's going to help us. Luke 11.52, I'll read it. Woe to you lawyers... For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. Wow. Hindering. We shouldn't hinder those who want to come to Christ, because it's only by grace that anybody does. You hinder the ones who are entering. So you don't enter. If anybody else wants to, you stop them. And you say, no, it's by law works, law works, law works. And then people, well, I guess I can't come. Luke 18, 16. But Jesus called for them, saying, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I know I preached on that. The ones who see their need for Christ. Don't hinder them. Don't give needless offense. Don't prejudge. Do, you, do, do any of us know who God's going to save? 
We don't know. Don't hinder people for man-made reasons. Don't hinder them. Acts 8.36, as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what hinders me from being baptized? What was the answer? Nothing. Acts 11.17, therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to hinder God? So that word shows up in Luke X in the context of people coming to God and not hindering them. Humans are prejudiced. That's the way we are part of the sin nature. And we think we know God's only going to save certain kind of people or we only want to be around certain kind of people. But God saves all kinds of different people by his grace. And if we hinder people coming to Christ, that would be very wicked. You know, Bob, this discussion reminds me of a, one of my all-time favorite articles that you wrote. It was entitled uh, Dining with the King. And in that oh, yeah. article, it's all about mishta, this idea that God brings people to a, a dinner, and at the dinner there's a reversal. Those who were seemingly in the kingdom are actually showed to be excluded, and those who seemingly were excluded are brought in because they have faith in God and his promises. And one of the points you make in that article, and it's relevant here, is that if God invites someone to his table, who are we to exclude them? And that's something that really touched me, even in our discussions with the warnings about the Lord's Supper. I was going to say, 1 Corinthians 11. Yeah, amen. If it's awful to start thinking I have better status than other Christians because of my social standing. I've got more money, I got a bigger house, I got better friends, I'm more respectable. That's going on in 1 Corinthians 11. And Paul said that was really bad. Well, there's only one slide, we'll throw it onto the next one. Uh, Eric, close us in prayer. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word and to see that you do in, indeed receive sinners that it uh, doesn't matter what our ethnicity is, what our background is, what our status is, that all that matters is coming to Christ. We thank you, Lord, for these words that you did include us Gentiles into the glorious promises. And we thank you, Lord, for our teacher, Bob. We pray uh, for him and his continued work and acts and that we would continue to learn your great truths in Jesus' name. Amen.